this morning we're closing out 1 Timothy chapter 6 and looking at verses 17 through 20. As we close, what has been oh, a joy for me to go through this book. It's been one of my favorite books to preach through. So Let's pray before we open up these last verses together. Father, we thank You for this written Word, Word that was breathed out by You. Thankful that You carried along men, prophets and apostles, to write this inerrant, this inerrant, unstained, efficacious Word. We're thankful that the church has preserved it over the generations by Your grace and by Your strong right arm. We pray that even this morning that it would go forth and that it would not return void. We would find that our hearts are being stirred, that our souls are being rebuked where there is need. They are being exhorted and encouraged where there is need. And that in the midst of this room that you are high and lifted up on the throne of the hearts of your people. We pray all of this in the strong name of Christ Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. First Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 20. This is the holy, inerrant, sufficient Word of God. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Though the grass withers, the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. may seem like a little bit of an odd close to the end of 1 Timothy, and, and it is in many ways, but let's see if we can make a little bit of sense of it as he kind of does this postscript. Uh, he had already entered into the doxology there in verse 16, and then he erupts into this uh, just as a kind of postscript at the end. You remember that throughout this book, Paul has been taking to task the false teachers, and part of what he has been taking them to task about is that they are wrongly motivated by riches. And so as we look at the book, Paul points out in chapter 6, verse 5, that they sought godliness as a means of gain in this world. He makes the warning about, about the desire to, to be rich in chapter 6, verse 9. He tells us that the love of money is 
the root of all kinds of evil in 6.10. He already mentioned in chapter 3 that a man is not eligible to be an elder in the church if he is, quote, a lover of money. He did something very similar in chapter 3 when he spoke about deacons, saying that they are not to be, quote, greedy for dishonest gain. And so what he has been doing throughout the book is he has been attacking these false teachers who desire to be rich, to make some kind of profit in this world, and who truly loved riches. They had their minds set upon earthly things, as Paul will say in another book. But as we said in previous weeks, as we tackled some of this, it's not wrong to be rich. Timothy is going to be ministering to some people who are rich there in the congregation. Now, most likely, most of the church was not this way. As we discussed in previous weeks, the early church was really made up of mostly the poor. It will often be brought as an accusation of opponents to the Christian church in those early decades and early first centuries that the church really is just a gathering of the poor and of slaves and of women. And it will be mocked because of that. But there were rich in the church, in the early church. In fact, the Lord will use the rich in the early church because there were no church buildings. There were no public places to gather. And so it was often in the homes of the rich whom the Lord had blessed for the good of the congregation that the church would meet in these little house churches. So after all of this talk about the dangers of riches, Paul clearly feels a proscript is necessary in this letter to address those who are rich. And so Paul has them in mind when he says, as for the rich in this present age. I think it may also be that Paul is telling Timothy to charge the rich at the end of this letter because he has been going through this letter, instructing Timothy how he is to pastor this church, how he is to lead this church, how he is to put the household of faith in order, and how he is to care for it in a biblical way. And it's often the rich that are the most intimidating among a group of people. When someone is rich, when they have wealth, They are often given deference, they are often given respect, they are often given weight within a group that may make sense in the world, but it doesn't make sense in the church. I remember watching Oprah decades ago. This was not a habit, uh, but it was because she had uh, Charles Barkley and Michael Jordan on there together. And I always find Barkley entertaining, and I'm always fascinated by Jordan. And she is interviewing them, and uh, Barclay makes the comment while they're in the interview, and he says, all kinds of people say Jordan is handsome. He's not handsome. And Oprah says to Barclay, she says, Charles, you really don't believe Jordan is, is handsome? And Barclay is trying to answer, and Jordan is talking over the top of him, and Barclay says, no, he's not handsome. I think when you get 300, 400, 500 million dollars, you all of a sudden become handsome. Uh, That is often the case. Timothy, don't shy away from warning the rich. 
Don't allow them to receive undue respect and honor. Don't be intimidated by them. Charge them, he says. Our first point, what the rich are to refrain from. What the rich are to refrain from. And just to be clear, I want to be crystal clear here. Every single one of us in this room by worldly standards and surely by biblical standards is rich. You all have a roof over your head. Most of you own your own home. Almost every single one of you, and I could say almost categorically every single one of you, lives in some place where you have more than one room. You have food on your tables. You're not scared about whether you're going to eat today. You have food in your refrigerators. You all have multiple, we all have multiple changes of clothes. This is not true for most of the world. Surely not true for most of the world in the history of the world. You are rich. I am rich. And so when Paul writes this, he is speaking to us. He's giving this charge to us. And Paul is a physician of the heart. He understands the temptation for the rich. The rich are to refrain from these two twin killers. Pride of our riches and reliance upon our riches. Pride and reliance. Refrain from pride. Why? Because we have no right to be proud. We have nothing that we have not been given. It is so silly. The gift, the gift that we have been given begins to be a source of pride. And that pride will lead to destruction. Charge them, Timothy, not to be proud because they are rich. I read an account recently of a young man who was raised by godly Christian parents and these Christian parents would take him to church week in and week out and there was an awakening of sorts in their local church and this young man, a teenager, was affected by what was happening in the church and he was apparently converted to saving faith and, and he was on fire for the things of Christ, and he would go to every single service that the church offered. He would go to every prayer meeting. And yet, what marked him was there was just a humility about him. He wasn't puffed up with pride or with self-assurance like a lot of young men are. He was meek. He was strong, but he was meek. And when... He would go to a meeting, he would often be silent, he wouldn't talk, and people barely noticed him. But there was a night where there was a prayer meeting, and they were gathering at a house, and there was inclement weather, and so a lot of people couldn't make it, and so the owner of the house and this young man were there, and the owner of the house decided he would begin in prayer, and he looked around and didn't want to be the only one to pray, and so he said to this young man, would you close us in prayer this evening? And after he prayed, the young man began to pray, and he had a fluency in prayer. It was a majesty in the way that he prayed. It just kind of flowed off of his tongue. It was rich, it was deep, it was theologically sound, and everybody in the room were absolutely amazed by this teenage young boy. After that, almost every prayer meeting the church had, they would call upon this young man to pray, and they would often talk about how astonished they were how the Bible would just kind of pour off of his tongue. It wasn't forced. He always had the right passage to pray at the right time, and it was never forced. 
He seemed to have an intimacy with God that most of us would give our right arm for. And so they began encouraging the young man to go to seminary and train for the pastorate, and that wasn't, hadn't been his plan, but he decided so many had said that to him that he would go. And so he went off to seminary, and he did well studying theology. He seemed to have an aptitude for it. But he also seemed to have a failing. That was he began to get puffed up and proud. He began to be a contentious young man. He argued with everyone. He refused to ever be corrected. He stopped showing any kind of humility before authorities, whether in the church or in the classroom with his teachers. He eventually graduated from seminary and he went before his presbytery and his presbytery refused to approve him for ministry. And instead of that humbling him, it made him more proud and angry. And so he marched off and he began another profession. And he fell into bad company and he became a man whose life was given over to sensual pleasures. And he died an incredibly early death. He had been given a gift. But that gift became a source of pride and pride destroys. Charge them, Timothy, to refrain from pride. Charge them also to refrain from reliance that is setting their hope on the uncertainty of riches. Riches are very precarious, Paul is saying. Uncertain. They are not a stable foundation. You can have it today and you can lose it tomorrow. You can lose it today. I've read an account this week of a meeting in 1923 of the nine wealthiest men in the United States possibly the world at that time. Phil Riken mentioned it, then I went off searching for it and read all kinds of articles about it yesterday and last night. One from Forbes magazine, these nine wealthiest men met to discuss the future and the meeting included these people, the president of America's largest steel company, the president of America's largest utility company, the president of America's largest gas company, the president of the New York Stock Exchange, the president of the Bank of International Settlements, the nation's greatest wheat speculator, the nation's greatest Wall Street tycoon, and head of the world's greatest monopoly, and a member of President Harding's staff, who was president at the time. And within 25 years, the president of the largest steel company, Charles M. Schwab, died a bankrupt man. The president of the largest utility company, Samuel Insull, died penniless. The president of the largest gas company, Howard Hobson, suffered a mental breakdown, ending up in an insane asylum. The president of the New York Stock Exchange, Richard Whitney, was sent to prison. The bank president, Leon Fraser, took his own life. The wheat speculator, Arthur Cutton, died penniless. The head of the world's greatest monopoly, Ivan Kruger, called the Match King because he dominated the match industry, also took his own life. The member of President Harding's cabinet, Albert Fall, had just been given a pardon from prison so he could die at home. And the Wall Street tycoon, Jesse Lauriston Livermore, had two drinks at a New York hotel, walked into the cloakroom where he sat on a stool and took a gun to his temple because he had just lost $95 million. All of them. All nine of them. The richest men in the country, if not the world at that time. 
and all lost it. Charge them not to rely upon it, Timothy. If that's what we are to refrain from, pride and reliance, the second point is the remedy. What is the remedy for this? For the rich, how do they combat? How do we combat pride and reliance? We are to, Paul says, quote, set our hope on God. Not on riches, but on God. Not on the savings account. Not on the 401k. Not on that inheritance that we hope to get. Not on that government-backed student loan being forgiven. Not on these things. Not the future selling of our business. Not the equity in our home. Not that raise that I long for. No. Set our hope on God. On God. Now, God gave us all of these things to enjoy, as we'll discuss. They're gifts from His hand. But it's silly to rely upon the gift rather than the giver. We are to enjoy, but not rely upon. We rely upon Him. On Him. The gift is precarious. It can change. It can diminish like Bitcoin. It can crash like the stock market. The equity in your home can give way, but the giver does not. And he's the one that gave all the gifts. This giver is the most sure foundation there can be. He's unchanging. He is unaffected by anything. He remains the same forever. He is unfailing. What He promises to be, He is. He is unstained. There is no corruption in Him. He does not shift like the markets. He is always true. He is always right. He is always strong. He is always lasting. As has been said, one with God is a majority. If you have God, you are rich. Rich in stability. God seems like the least firm thing in this concrete world. And yet when you have Him, or more rightly said, when He has you, you realize that there is nothing more solid to depend upon in the entire universe. You rely upon God. It's the height of foolishness to put our hope in anything else. We set our hope on Him. Now does that mean that the gifts themselves are to be ignored and despised? No, Paul says it here. It is God, quote, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Have you thought about that? Do you live like that? That God has given you all of these things to enjoy. To enjoy. Many Christians walk around with a, an undue and an unright false guilt thinking that they're not to enjoy the things that God has given them. And we're literally robbing ourselves when we do this. We're literally stealing from ourselves the joy that God has gifted to us. He has given us things to enjoy. And when we allow that joy to be taken by undue and misplaced guilt. It's an error. 
Now listen, enjoying the gifts of God, what He has given to us too much, enjoying it too much can be sin. But here's what I want you to understand and what I want to be very clear about as well this morning. Enjoying the gifts of God too little can also be sin. Have you thought about that? Because enjoying them too little shows a lack of gratitude for the gifts that He has given. But even more than that, it can show a wrong view of God. As if He is not the giver of good gifts. As if He doesn't want you to enjoy things. As if He isn't concerned about your happiness and joy in this world. It's a wrong view of God. Christians aren't to be prudes. You're to enjoy the summer. You're to enjoy the beach. You're to enjoy going up north. You're to enjoy a barbecue with friends. You're to enjoy sex with your spouse. You're to enjoy sitting outside underneath the stars with friends around a campfire. You're to enjoy playing games with your kids and not feel guilty for a second. Good gifts given to you. We give honor to the giver of good gifts by enjoying the good gifts He has given. If I gave my wife a beautiful diamond necklace on her upcoming 24th anniversary here, I didn't, so don't get your hopes up. Uh, But if I gave it to her, and she said how thankful she was for it, and then she put it in a safety deposit box, and after a year or two, I... I didn't see her wearing it. And I said, Now, Lee, aren't you, aren't you thankful for the gift that I gave to you? She said, Oh, yeah, I love it. I'm thankful for it. I said, But you're not enjoying it. Ah, but I'm thankful for it. But, but you see, not wearing it, not enjoying it, that doesn't appear you're thankful. And that, that frankly, is an insult. Enjoy what he's given. Don't hide it. We don't run away from it. Christians are not prudes. Of all the people in the world, we know the giver behind the gift, and we count these gifts as an act of absolute divine love. We aren't prudes. But we also aren't pleasure hounds. There are some who spend every waking moment seeking amusement and fleshly gratification. They're like a bee flying from flower to flower. They're just going through life flying from one fleshly amusement to the next. And seriousness and thinking about eternity and living for something other than just this momentary fleshly happiness seems like a distraction to them. Want no part of that. It gets in the way of pleasure. And even some Christians get swept away by earthly pleasure-seeking. As Neil Postman said years and years ago, we will just seek simply amuse ourselves to death. And there's danger there, especially in the country and affluence and the culture that we live in. Being a pleasure hound is a deadly pursuit. As Christians, we are not prudes. But neither are we pleasure hounds. 
Rather, we are pilgrims. We're pilgrims. So Paul tells Timothy that there are things required of the, the rich. What to refrain from, he gives them the remedy, and now what they are required to do. He's not making this optional. These are not optional things for you and I. Verse 18, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. And he says that by doing so, you have this pilgrim mindset because you realize that you are storing up treasures for yourselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. This is what's required. Christians are to be the most giving people in the world bar none. This is required. This is not an option. You give. And you give joyfully and willingly. I'm going to give you three reasons why. First, we give much because it was all, it was all given to us. All that we have is simply a gift. We're stewards. We know that what we have, we have as ours because He gave it to us. It's not ours. It's not mine. When you begin to look at your possessions and your riches and your savings accounts as not belonging to you, when that mindset changes, it changes all of life. And that more than anything else will prick your heart to be a generous heart. A giving heart. It's easy to give when you know it's not yours. It's easy to give when you know you just hold it in stewardship for God. And you and I begin to see our homes and our clothes and our time and our bank accounts and the food in our refrigerators and our cars and on our own pride and reliance quickly disappear and generosity will emerge. We give much because it was all given to us. Second, we give much because we have been given much. We have received the greatest of gifts. What makes you truly rich? It is not your stuff. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich for your sake, He became poor, so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. Why are you rich beyond rich? Because you have received the greatest gift. If you are a Christian, it doesn't even matter if you can rub two nickels together. You are the richest of people on the face of the earth. This is why that widow could give all that she had. Because she had received the greatest of gifts. Our Lord and Savior, the very Son of God, who had all the glories of heaven humbled himself by becoming a servant and he was born in a cattle stall. Became poor for your sake that you might become rich. Everlastingly rich. The greatest of gifts at the greatest of costs. 
And therefore, we're to be marked by that gift. It's to shape us from moment to moment. It's to shape all of our life. We give much because we have received much. It's been an interesting phenomenon in recent years, may last 10, 15 years, called Pay It Forward, where you will go through the drive-thru at a local fast food chain and the person in front of you drives through ahead of you and they pay for your meal before you get up there and then because your meal was paid for it encourage you to pay something for it. Maybe the meal of the person behind you, maybe something else later in the day or the week. You see, even the world understands this. You received a gift, you were blessed, and so that will lead to you blessing others. If they can understand it as a result of common grace and by getting an extra value meal for free in the McDonald's line, you can understand it at the foot of the cross. You have been given so much. You're to pay it forward. Third, we give much because we know eternity is impacted. He says in verse 19 that by giving, those who give in Christ are, quote, thus storing treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future. What future? Future glory. We are not prudes, but neither are we pleasure hounds. We are pilgrims. And we're to understand that. He says, quote, taking hold of that which is truly life. What we give is never lost. What we think is life here is but a flicker of a match compared to the brilliance and brightness of the sun there. We live ultimately for there, not for here. And Paul is contrasting that for us. Verse 17, they who are rich in this present age, verse 18, storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for what? For the future. The Christian, even the rich Christian, lives for the future and the present. Especially the rich Christian must do so. You live in light of eternity. Refrain from pride and reliance. The remedy, rely on God. And the requirement, be rich in good works. And then Paul, ever the mentor and ever the pastor, wants to remind Timothy finally. He reminds him one more time before he closes out the letter. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You see, this is the greatest of riches. You received it, Timothy, from Lois and Eunice. You received this good deposit, the faith, the Christian faith. So people that will busy themselves about the world and they will be so busy in the church with different things and so busy in their family with different things. No, this is the very thing, Timothy. This is the great deposit. This is the great riches that we possess. It is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't you dare get involved in these false things. Don't argue about words. Don't get caught up in controversies. Stick close to this Gospel. Live in light of it. Keep it. And pass it on. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. 
body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. We're almost home, my friends, and so we labor as those who are almost home. I thought this morning, just about taking 15 minutes and uh, reading through the whole book of 1 Timothy, just to recall all of these things to our mind that we've studied over these last months, uh, has been a joy for me. It's been a joy for me because I love the Bride of Christ. I really love the church, and I love this particular manifestation of local manifestation of the church. And my hope is this, is that we guard this good deposit as we go forward, and that we go forward as pilgrims. We go forward being generous with one another and generous with the world around us and living in light of eternity. We do that together as a church, as Paul is pointing out in 1 Timothy. Let's do so together. Let's pray. Great Father, we exalt you this morning, the giver of all good gifts. We thank you for the many good gifts that you've given to us. Thank you for the food we shall eat later today, the clothes that we're wearing. Thank you for friends to walk through this life with. We thank you for children and for spouses. We thank you for the good news of this week of Roe vs. Wade being overturned. We thank you that later we'll be in air conditioning today. We thank you, most importantly, for your exceeding kindness to us, giving us the gift of your Son. We might know fellowship with you now and for all of eternity. I want to give you praise with all that we are, and to live as pilgrims in light of eternity. Remind us that this is not our home. Remind us of the home to which we go. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.